PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to the Craigcast from Physical Therapy. Each month, PTJ Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Rebecca Craig, offers her take on the articles appearing in this month's PTJ. Here is Rebecca Craig. Welcome to the December issue of Physical Therapy Journal. My name is Becky Craig. I am Editor-in-Chief for this last month, and I am so delighted to be here to share this December issue with you. It is spectacular. So I am so excited about the Health Services Research Special Series that I'm going to begin with that. You will see that December, January, and February each have articles that are associated with health services research. Please read the editorial by Drs. Linda Resnick and Janet Freeberger. They describe what health services research is, and then they're with us to talk about these individual papers. So I hope you enjoy them as much as I have. I am delighted today to have both Linda Resnick and Janet Freeberger, who were the co-editors of the special series, with me. So I'm going to introduce each of the papers and the authors, and they are going to talk about the papers. So thank you both for coming. The first paper is entitled Refinements of the Medicare Outpatient Therapy Annual Expenditure Limit Policy. This paper is written and submitted by Peter Amico and colleagues who are from RTI International in Waltham, Massachusetts, Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, and the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Innovation in Baltimore, Maryland. And Janet, I think you're going to talk about the Yes, yeah, thanks, Becky. I was very excited to review this paper, and I think Linda would agree. This study is using Medicare data to simulate different scenarios of the therapy caps that are used, you know, for outpatient care. I think it's one of the first articles that has really tried to address this issue and uh, propose different ways of trying to set the cap and see how that affected overall spending. Another objective of their study was to look at a risk adjustment approach to the therapy caps, and that is basically taking into account that to provide one cap for all patients is not necessarily equitable because some patients will have more severe problems than others. And so if we try to use a risk adjustment approach to coming up with a better idea of what the cap should be, how does that impact the findings? So I think this is a great article to address a very policy-relevant issue and certainly doesn't have all the answers, but starts to give us some guidance and inform us on ways to maybe come up with alternative payment policies. Thank you. The next paper is entitled, RCMS G-Code Functional Limitation Severity Modifiers, Responsive to Change Across an Episode of Outpatient Rehabilitation. The authors are Diane Jetty and her colleagues. And one of these colleagues is Alan Jetty, who will become the editor-in-chief in January of 2016. The authors come from the Department of Physical Therapy at MGH Institute of Health Professions in Boston, Massachusetts, Rehabilitation and Sports Therapy Department, and Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Department at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio, and the School of Public Health at Boston University in Massachusetts. And Linda, I think you're going to talk about this one. That's right. This paper examined the validity of CMS's mandated functional limitations reporting system for outpatient 
therapies, which became mandatory in 2013. And what they did was they compared the severity modifiers, or the G-codes as we're used to calling them, to a validated measure, which is the activity measure for post-acute care, the AMPAC. And to our knowledge, this is the first study to do this type of analysis. They showed that the G-codes were limited in detecting change in function, and their ability to detect change differed depending on the patient's baseline scores. So these findings really challenge the usefulness of the current CMS functional limitation system for examining change in function over time or change in function that might be attributable to rehabilitation. And I really think this sets the stage for further research that's going to be done in this area as we have more data on the G-codes. And I'm just going to add that these papers, when we talk about health services research, and please read the editorial that Janet and Linda wrote, because it really describes and explains health services research and its relevance to physical therapy. When we look at sample sizes, the one that I'm going to talk about now has 64,000 patients in it. So I think the concept of, I don't know if it's fair to call it big data, but certainly large samples is one of the unique features of these kinds of data. The next paper is entitled Association of Rehabilitation Intensity for Stroke and Risk of Hospital Readmission. The authors are A. William Andrews and colleagues from the Department of Physical Therapy Education at Elon in North Carolina and the Cecil G. Shep Center for Health Services Research at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And I should mention that Janet is one of the co-authors. So Janet, talk about this one. So again, I think that this study addresses a very policy-relevant question of how therapy can impact hospital readmissions. So we took advantage of uh, hospital discharge data from two states, Florida and Arkansas, and looked at the intensity of rehabilitation during the acute care stay. And we actually looked at that by quantifying the amount of charges that were incurred during the inpatient stay and then looked at how that impacted a 30-day and 90-day readmission and found that there was a dose-response relationship in the sense that the more therapy that they got in the inpatient setting, the more intense the therapy, based on how we defined it, there was a decreased risk of hospital readmission. So I think, again, this sets the stage for other studies, trying to understand what the potential reasons for that relationship were. I think probably one of them has to do with the fact that the interaction with the therapist probably helped with better discharge planning, which ultimately may have impacted the readmission. So it doesn't answer all the questions, but starts to address an important topic and hopefully will stimulate others to look at that area of research more. So as you hear Janet and Linda talk about these papers, I hope you are getting as excited about them as I have been in reading the first drafts and certainly seeing them in print. This is such a wonderful special issue. The next paper is entitled Use of Physical Therapy for Low Back Pain by Medicaid Enrollees. The authors are Julie Fritz and her colleagues from the Department of Physical Therapy, the Department of Family and Preventive Medicine, and the Department of Orthopedics, all at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City and also from the University of Utah Health Plans in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I think that this one is Linda's. That's right. So this paper was important because there's been very little research on the role of physical therapy for the management of Medicaid patients with low back pain. So Fritz and colleagues, they used Medicaid claims data from the state of Utah to describe the healthcare entry setting 
the utilization of health care and the timing of physical therapy care. And they examined the relationships between those factors and the subsequent cost for health care for low back pain over a one-year period. What they found was that only 20% of patients with low back pain received any physical therapy, and of these, only 16% entered physical therapy care directly, even though they have the ability to have direct access in that state. When patients entered physical therapy directly, they had lower costs and lower costs for low back pain over the next year. This finding demonstrates the value of direct access to physical therapy, and it suggests that improved access to physical therapy for Medicaid patients with low back pain may help decrease overall costs. So this kind of study needs to be replicated in additional states to see if the finding holds true, but it's very promising and a good evidence in support of the benefits of direct access. Excellent. Thank you. The next paper is entitled, Out-of-Pocket Spending for Ambulatory Physical Therapy Services from 2008 to 2012, National Panel Survey, by Julie Siobhan and colleagues, who are from the Department of Physical Therapy at Springfield College in Massachusetts, Department of Physical Therapy at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia, and Duke Clinical Research Institute at Duke University School of Medicine in Durham, North Carolina. And Linda, I believe you're taking this one. This paper examined out-of-pocket costs for physical therapy. We all know that out-of-pocket costs for healthcare can be a barrier to access, and people may choose to forego treatment if out-of-pocket costs are too high. So Chevron used nationally representative data from the Medical Expenditure Panel Survey, MEPS, to examine the burden of out-of-pocket costs for physical therapy, as well as factors associated with these costs. And they found that on average, patients had 9.9 visits of physical therapy and $1,700 approximately in physical therapy costs. A bit more than half, 54% of those who had physical therapy also had out-of-pocket costs, and the mean costs were $351. The median was about $144. So there were some patients that had very high out-of-pocket costs, and they identified the predictors of costs, including being female, being non-Hispanic, and having a higher income. And their findings also demonstrated that there were substantial differences by geographic region with patients in the South and the West having higher out-of-pocket costs than patients in the Northeast. And patients in urban areas having much higher costs, 72% higher than patients in rural areas. So this suggests that there are potential barriers to access to care for some patients. These findings are useful for informing fair copay legislative efforts to limit patient copays. The last research article in this issue related to health services research is entitled Risk Adjustment for Lumbar Dysfunction, Comparison of Linear Mixed Models with and Without Inclusion of Between-Clinic Variation as a Random Effect. The authors are Shang-Chi Yen and colleagues, and Linda is an author in this paper. The authors come from the Department of Physical Therapy, Movement and Rehabilitation Sciences, and the Department of Health Sciences at Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts, the Department of Physical Therapy at Sacred Heart University in Fairfield, Connecticut, Occupational Science and Technology Department with University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and finally, Providence VA Medical Center and Department of Health Services Policy and Practice at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. And I believe that Janet's going to take this one. So this research article really would fall under the classification of a methods paper, in my opinion. 
It's addressing risk adjustment, which is an important approach for a lot of health services research. We often are looking at observational data, so we need to do things statistically to account for the fact that patients may differ in their illness severity or the problems that they have. And what this paper was specifically was trying to address was issues around the fact that when patients are seen by the same therapist or in the same clinic, they tend to be more similar than patients that are seen at other clinics and by other therapists. So there's somewhat of what's called a clustering of patients as far as their characteristics within therapists and within clinics. This is important to take care of when you're trying to statistically account, when you're making comparisons and accounting for differences across clinics and therapists. So they actually found that if they use statistical methods to account for the similarities or clustering of patients within clinics, that the models that they generated had better fits and the estimates that they came up with were more precise. So we're hoping that Articles like this will continue to show up in PTJ because it's important to try to advance the profession in this area by learning about more sophisticated methods that can be used to address the challenges of using observational data. So we were happy to have this in the first set of articles for the special series. Thank you. That was really well stated. So we've just completed the research articles that are associated with the special series, and now we have a perspective that is entitled Role of Health Services Research in Producing High-Value Rehabilitation Care. The authors are Sean Rundle and colleagues, and this is an interprofessional team, so I'm not going to list all of the departments, but I will say that it's at the University of Washington in Seattle, Washington. Just It's a remarkable team that is submitted, and the Doctor of Physical Therapy Division at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. And Linda, I think you're doing this one. This perspective is a really great fit to kick off the special issues series because what it does is it offers a comprehensive framework for understanding health services research and discusses the ways that the different types of common study approaches can be used to evaluate value of physical therapy. So I think it provides a very good overview and context for different approaches. Specifically, the perspective describes comparative effectiveness research, patient-centered outcomes research, and health economic assessment and provides a nice overview of these types of uh, approaches. And they also discuss how data from these types of studies can be used for decision-making and health policy. So I think it was a very good fit for the first issue of the special series. Thank you. And finally, we have a case report in a series entitled Implementation of a Quality Improvement Process Aimed to Deliver Higher Value Physical Therapy for Patients with Low Back Pain. This is a case report submitted by Emily Carlin and Becky McCarthy, who come from the orthopedic service line at Fairview Health Services in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I believe that Janet is going to report on this case report. Yes, that's right, Becky. Thanks. So, again, we were very excited to have this manuscript in the first group of articles for the HSR series, as Linda and I noted in the editorial the ultimate goal of health services research is to influence policy, whether that's at you know the national level or the level of the clinic. And this is really talking about one healthcare system and how they try to put evidence into practice and implement changes to improve care of low back pain. 
So this is a real-world example of, you know, trying to use the data and translate it into improving practice. And the um, authors talk about the steps taken to launch a quality improvement project and the barriers and facilitators that they faced along the way. And then they report on a significant number of patients that they saw, 47,000. So for a case report, that's really quite a large sample. They provide pretty compelling evidence that their quality improvement initiative improved outcomes. They used the S-West Street Disability Index as their measure and looked at percentage change in that measure over time. So a great paper, and I think one that will resonate, especially for clinicians who are out in practice and trying to figure out ways to improve care. And I don't know if this is fair, but it talks about health policy with a big P and health policy with a little P, meaning this is really taking the evidence and affecting change in the clinic, which is health policy with a little P. Do you two agree with that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think clinicians want to know how to use data. And this is a very good example of how to collect and utilize data. Well, so I thank you again for joining me today to introduce this three-part special series to our listeners. And I hope that the enthusiasm and excitement about these papers is as high as I feel. It's just been incredible. So thank you both for coming. Thank you for supporting this. Yeah, thanks a lot, Becky. In addition in this December issue, we have three research reports that are not health services research but are certainly very well done and worthy of your listening or reading. The first one is entitled Comparison of Patterns of Physical Activity and Sedentary Behavior Between Children with Cerebral Palsy and Children with Typical Development. The authors are Jennifer Ryan and colleagues from the Institute of Environment, Health, and Societies at Brunel University, London, in the United Kingdom, and the School of Medicine at Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland. This is a paper with a very small sample of 33 children who have cerebral palsy and 33 age and sex match children with typical development. The authors were really interested in looking at physical activity and sedentary behavior between children with cerebral palsy and children with typical development. There's certainly in the literature, and you hear it in the media, that sedentary activity leads to secondary conditions such as obesity and perhaps atrophy, muscle atrophy, deconditioning, etc. There was a real interest in trying to document what children were doing. And the children that they selected were a mean age of eight and a half years of age. They used the gross motor function classification system to describe the level of disability that the children had. And 24 of the 33 children were class one or stage one. And that level means that the child can walk in and outdoors, climb stairs without support, run and jump, and the primary problems are decreased gait speed, balance, and coordination. So remember that the majority of the children were level one or, in old terms, mildly involved. And yet, when the authors used this accelerometer to monitor the children's activity for at least a four-day period, what they found was that the sample of children with cerebral palsy were more sedentary and demonstrated less vigorous activity or even moderate activity than the age-matched sample. 
I'm just going to give you some numbers because I hadn't thought about it before. So the recommendation for activity for children is at least 60 minutes per day. And these authors said because they were monitoring continuously during the waking hours of the child, except when the child was swimming, that they thought it was more reasonable to consider 90 minutes of activity per day. And that's absolutely not what they saw with these children. So I don't think you'll be surprised at the conclusions. I think it's very nice to have a beginning observation. They can't draw any causal relations because it's a descriptive study, but it starts to serve as a benchmark and certainly suggests that therapists and family members should consider the importance of increasing activity in children with cerebral palsy. The next article is entitled, Effects of Vibration Intensity, Exercise, and Motor Impairment on Leg Muscle Activity Induced by Whole Body Vibration in People with Stroke. I have to be very honest with you, when the whole idea of the vibration was first introduced into the literature, I was one of the skeptics. And certainly in looking at this article by Lin Rong Liao and colleagues, from the Department of Physiotherapy in Work Injury Rehabilitation Hospital in Guangzhou, China, Department of Rehabilitation Science at Hong Kong Polytechnic University in Hong Kong, China, and the School of Allied Health Sciences at Griffin University in the Gold Coast, Australia. I was surprised at this study. I was surprised at the amount of information that's been collected on well individuals and the effect of vibration and that there's nice work that's being done in persons with stroke. So I don't have time to go into a great detail, but I'll tell you that this study involved 36 individuals with chronic stroke, and chronic stroke care was described as at least six months duration. And basically the persons performed static exercise with no whole body vibration with low-intensity whole-body vibration or high-intensity whole-body vibration. There are wonderful descriptions of the two types of vibration that are now in the literature called synchronous vibration and side-altering vibration. So if you're unaware of those two different techniques, please read the introduction. It does a very nice, clear job. The authors were interested in knowing whether this vibration coupled with exercise could enhance muscle activity in the knee flexors and ankle flexors. They provide an excellent rationale, and those of you who are familiar with persons who have stroke residual problems in walking with stroke know that there's lack of adequate knee control and that often ankle dorsiflexors don't clear during the swing phase, nor does a person demonstrate heel strike at the initiation of stance. So they were really interested in seeing whether this technique would enhance the activity in the knee flexors and ankle dorsiflexors. The study is well designed. It's very complicated design, and I'm sure it will benefit by a larger sample. But it was powered strongly enough to be able to draw the conclusion that, in fact, there is a relationship between vibration, exercise, and activation of these muscles. The knee flexors and dorsiflexors on both sides, both the paretic side and the non-paretic side, were enhanced by the vibration and the exercise in combination. And there appears to be a dose-response relationship. 
So I think the authors met their hypothesis and were encouraged by the results. So bottom line for me is that this program appears to have activated the muscles while the persons were doing the exercise. The question that this article leaves for me to hear the answer to is, are those muscles in fact enhanced during walking? So what happens after the exercise during functional activities? So I look forward to reading their next research article. The next article is entitled Self-Reported Disability, Association with Lower Extremity Performance, and Other Determinants in Older Adults Attending Primary Care. The authors are Annabella G. Silva and her colleagues, and they come from the School of Health Sciences, the Institute of Electronics and Telematics Engineering, and the Department of Mathematics, all at the University of Alviero in Portugal, and also from the Center for Health Technology and Services Research at the University of Porto in Portugal. This was also an interesting paper, and this is a sample of 504 participants who are at least age 60 years or older. The purpose was to look at two different assessment tools. One is a self-report, and the self-report is a 12-item World Health Organization Disability Assessment Schedule, and the other is a physical performance test known as the Short Physical Performance Battery. This is a very simple, quick test that has had lots of attention demonstrated to be valid and reliable and has been used internationally. So the question that the authors had was whether the self-report or the short performance, I'm going to say the SPPB, were equal or in early detection of a problem with an older adult. So these patients that we're talking about were all coming to their primary care physician. And the authors were interested in, I would say, using either or both of these tools as an early screen of an indication of beginning disability. So they really wanted to see whether they could identify early decline for appropriate interventions to prevent or slow the disablement process. And basically what they found was what has been talked about previously, and that is that self-report and physical performance are two different constructs and measure two different aspects of disability. And again, I can't wait to Alan Jetty as the editor because he'll be so much more eloquent at talking about papers like this. But they concluded that it looked as though the short performance battery, the SPPV, was better at earlier detection of problems. They collected other data in addition to using these two tools. They collected data related to pain and they collected data related to depressive symptoms in addition to others. But those two, pain and depressive symptoms, and particularly depressive symptoms, were also indicators of early decline in physical performance. So this is a good beginning. I think we're talking about using screening tools in physicians' offices to help identify perhaps the beginning of a process that physical therapists might be able to, again, slow down, reverse, or decline. So that's this December issue. So we go from very small sample sizes where people are testing interesting new hypotheses to huge studies of hundreds of thousands of patients who have contributed in this issue to hopefully 
future changes in health policy with a big P and to implementation in the clinic. I thank all the authors for this wonderful final issue in my term as Editor-in-Chief. And so this is my last podcast, and we called it a crate cast because of Steve Glaros, and I'm grateful to him for pushing this whole thing. This is not something I was excited about doing, but I have really learned so much in having to summarize the articles in a very brief way and kind of take away the bottom line and try to attract you all to come into our journal and read the work that so many wonderful investigators and clinicians are producing. It has been such a pleasure to be Editor-in-Chief for 10 years, and I am so looking forward to Alan Jetty taking us to the next level. He has such international recognition that I expect that the journal can only get better. So it's been so great to be with you all. Happy trails, and welcome, Alan. Thanks for listening. If you have a question for Dr. Craig, email ptj at apta.org. And be sure to include Craigcast in the subject line. This has been a production of APTA.